Hello and welcome, guys, and welcome to this week's edition of the Monarch Human Performance Podcast. I'm super excited to sit down and chat with Dr. Daniel Bornstein. Dan is the founding director for the Center of Performance, Readiness, Resiliency, and Recovery, and is an associate professor in the Department of Health and Human Performance at the Citadel, the Military College of South Carolina. Dan's PhD and current research agenda is on effective strategies for increasing population levels of physical activity in order to improve fitness, health, and national security. Dan has published extensively in leading peer-reviewed scientific journals and presents regularly at national and international scientific conferences. Dan's research has been featured in over 130 media outlets worldwide, including USA Today, Newsweek, Stars and Stripes, and National Public Radio. Based on his research, Dan has provided numerous briefings to senior military personnel and lawmakers, including briefings at the Pentagon and Capitol Hill. In addition to his research, Dan has held national leadership positions, including Project Coordinator for the U.S. National Physical Activity Plan from 2009 to 2014, Chair of the American Public Health Association's Physical Activity Section from 2015 to 2016, and is currently chairing the Expert Advisory Panel to develop a military sector, the U.S. National Physical Activity Plan. In this episode, Dan talks about his move from applied practitioner to academia, the development of the Center for Performance, Readiness, Resiliency, and Recovery, his current research projects, and the academic programs in tactical performance and resiliency offered by the Citadel. Good afternoon, Dan, and welcome to the podcast. Good afternoon, John. Thanks for having me, and, and really thanks for having the podcast. I think the opportunity to just come on and share a little bit of what I know and, and learn from others that you've had on your podcast is uh, it's just a great opportunity. Uh, I don't certainly purport to know it all and, and uh, I've gotten a lot from listening to your podcast and hope somebody can maybe take something away from this one as well. So thanks for the work that you're doing. Well, thank you very much, Dan. I really appreciate that, mate. And to have someone of your caliber on as well, is just great just to share your background and your information and what you guys are doing over there at the Citadel as well. Um, now, obviously, we're chatting a little bit off air, um, just about your background and your work over the Citadel. And as I was saying, I've, I've been aware of the Citadel for a number of years as well, just with regards to the strength conditioning programs you run over there as well. But for anyone who hasn't come across you and your work or what's going on over there at the Citadel, could you just uh, give us a little bit of background, where you started out and where you're currently at? Sure. Well, as we were talking about off air, I think sometimes when, when you look back on your life, it, it's easy to see how you got to where you are, but, uh, but when you're starting out, it's hard to imagine where you're going to end up. And mm -hmm. as we were saying, if somebody had told me 20 years ago, I was going to end up a college professor, I, I'd have told them they were absolutely crazy. And then a college professor at a, at a military college, no less, I'd have told them they were beyond crazy. Um, but you know, to make a long story short, um, I think I want to go back to even before I was uh, a professional. Uh, when I was 11 years old, uh, I was, I was, I was, it, was, it was Valentine's Day, February 11th, and I was 11 years old and my parents were both at work and I was at home and uh, I thought in my 11-year-old head it'd be a good idea to try to set the world record for stair jumping, see how many steps I could jump. And I grew up in New York in, in an old Victorian house and in a Victorian house there are very high ceilings on the first floor. So. The ceilings were about, I think about maybe 15, 16 feet high, which meant there was about 25 or so steps from the first floor to the second floor. So I decided the world record was going to be 18 steps. So I'm perched at the top of the stairs and I slid my hands as far down the guardrails, the handrails as I could, and I, and I just launched forward. And of course, as soon as my center of mass passed through and my hands were placed, uh, my hand slipped and I fell flat on my back. Um, and at the time, obviously I had the wind knocked out of me and I couldn't breathe for a little while, but when I finally sort of came to, and I could make a noise, my brother came running and I, uh, I was picked up by the volunteer fire department and taken to the hospital. And I was diagnosed with three cracked ribs in my back and released. And then about four months later, I started developing some pretty significant low back pain. And, mm -hmm. uh, I was subsequently diagnosed with, uh, fractures of my vertebrae at L4 and L5 on both sides. And I was diagnosed with two herniated discs and something called a spondylolysis, which is a slippage of one uh, reticular body in front of the other. And I was put in a brace and I was told not to move. So I was basically immobilized um, and removed from sport, removed from physical education. And the problems got worse. I, I started having more and more pain. Uh, and it was my first uh, real introduction into the idea that 
uh, sitting still was actually a, a bad thing. It was making me worse. And when I finally got into physical therapy and started feeling better, uh, it was this light that turned on for me. And, and, and that's been sort of a guidepost for me for, for the rest of my life. So I went on and got to my undergraduate uh, degree in psychology, uh, but I was, I, was a, I was an athletic trainer, student athletic trainer working with uh, football and lacrosse mm-hmm. at the college I went to, Hobart College in upstate New York. Um, and then I, I ended up just getting into the commercial fitness industry. Um, so I didn't have any real formal education in it, but sort of acquired some certifications, got you know a couple of personal trainer certifications and some strength and conditioning certifications and some corrective exercise certifications and gradually started putting tools in my toolbox. And I ultimately ended up starting a company uh, in Tucson, Arizona. It's called the Proactive Performance Institute. And uh, that was designed essentially to help individuals, not necessarily athletes or, or tactical athletes, um, but the, the general population to help them make lasting lifestyle change. And what I recognized at that point was that while the physical elements were important, so too were the elements of nutrition, recovery, uh, behavioral health. So we brought together a, a team. I brought together a collaborative team. So we had physical therapists, we had athletic trainers, we had strength coaches and personal trainers, we had dietitians, we had behavioral therapists, we had acupuncturists and massage therapists. This is back in the early 2000s. So this is right around the same time I think that athletes' performance was getting going, but I didn't really know about AP uh, back in the day. We were just kind of doing our own thing, and it was working. Uh, at least on, on, a, on, a, on a balance sheet, it was working. We were making money. Um, and I promised myself when I graduated from college that if, if I was ever consistently waking up, not like genuinely excited, juiced about going to work, that I would do something else. And, and I loved what I was doing for about the first eight years of that Proactive Performance Institute. Mm-hmm. And then it just got to the point where, you know, I was a CEO of a company and I wasn't really interacting with clients anymore. And Yes, we were working with some great sport athletes and even some tactical athletes at the time. We were working with a Border Patrol special operation team called Vortac. Uh, but I wasn't loving what I was doing, and, and uh, I decided to sell the company. So I sold that company and then wasn't sure what to do. But I decided, I was convinced actually by a couple of former employees to go back and get a PhD. But when I first started that conversation with them, I said, no, I'm not, I just, I'm not that kind of guy. Like, I'm not an intellectual, like, I'm not that smart. And they said, yes, you're that smart. And I said, no, well, I don't, I don't know. And, and, but what they really, what really sunk in for me was they said, you know, in a PhD, what you really learn is just how to do science, how to yeah. ask uh, good questions, empirical questions, and get good answers to them that are valid and reliable and, and truthful. And I said, okay, that's, that's a skill I'd like to have. And so I ended up at the University of South Carolina. Uh, they had the number one exercise science program in the country for PhD training. And uh, so I ended up there and I got my PhD in exercise science, but with an emphasis on physical activity and health. So I had mm-hmm. gone from this sort of strength and conditioning fitness one-on-one intervention level to how do we get an entire population of people to be just a little bit more physically active in order to decrease incidence, prevalence of chronic diseases like diabetes and heart disease uh, and, and other things. And so it was there that I also learned uh, the importance of, of, of how we're creatures of our environment. Our environment largely determines our behavior. And our environment is determined by, largely by policy. Mm-hmm. So I got very interested in policy change. And <clears throat> I started really reading the science and learning the science on physical activity and health, uh, physical activity and disease. And I realized that we haven't really gotten very far in terms of creating environments that we're going to allow more people to be more physically active. Mm-hmm. And I thought, boy, there must be something like, why, why is this happening? And I took a class actually in, in uh, sort of what, what they call messaging and framing. It was a public health course. And it was taught by a guy, wonderful professor, uh, who did all of his research in tobacco control policy. And it was through that class that I learned about just how successful the policy changes were for tobacco control. And we've seen it now, right? We've seen that tobacco usage, particularly smoking tobacco, has gone down precipitously in most countries. And that's the result of policies that made it harder and harder and harder to smoke. Um, but, But what was most interesting was the rationale behind those policy uh, advocacy efforts. And the message was not smoking is bad for you. That was not what drove 
elected leaders and, and policy officials to, to make the change. It was the detrimental effects of secondhand smoke. Mm-hmm. And that's when the light bulb went off for me. And I went, okay, this message that we're sending that physical activity is bad for health, or sorry, physical inactivity is bad for health and uh, physical activity is good for health. It's not resonating. It's not working. And that's when I started looking at some of the research on the impacts of low fitness on military readiness and, and ultimately national security. And that was when I said, okay, we've got to start to talk about physical inactivity and low fitness and, and obesity for that matter, not just as public health issues, but as issues of national security. And that that maybe that will be the message that resonates that allows us to create the policies and systems and environments that are going to ultimately be woven into the fabric of our culture that's going to allow people to live more actively, more healthfully. Um, and so that, that I ended up at the Citadel uh, and was so thankful for the opportunity to be at a military college doing this research to continue to not only shine a spotlight on this problem, but to hopefully identify some solutions to the problem. So I've been here for eight years and, and I spent my first eight years primarily as just a, a you know, college professor, which I love. I love teaching the cadets. It's one of my favorite things to do is to get in that classroom and see that exchange. And these are the future leaders for our country, for, excuse me, for our country. So to have the opportunity to work with them and get inside their head and get them thinking critically and, and trying to solve problems creatively is, is a wonderful opportunity. And I wanted to be able to use the Citadel as an example of how we could do things better. And so we, we, uh, we had the opportunity to stand up a center about a year and a half ago called the Center for Performance, Readiness, Resiliency, and Recovery, or we, we call it the CPR3. Uh, so I'm now the, the, the founding director of that center. And that center has a couple different pieces to it. It's got a, a community engagement piece where we work with local uh, tactical athletes. Uh, we have a research piece. Mm-hmm. And we have a piece where we have developed some academic programs specifically to train the future, uh, I guess, tactical, we call them tactical performance and resiliency experts as opposed to just tactical strength and conditioning experts. So that's, uh, again, kind of a long story. But so that, that got us from my, my being 11 years old to now 48 years old. And I did it in I don't know how many minutes, John, maybe, maybe it was too long. But no, anyway, awesome. we, covered, we covered 37 years in 10 minutes. No, I like that, Dan. I appreciate that, mate. And it was great to hear just like your your process of going through from that 11 years old, getting injured and then, you know, developing in the fitness space, you know, getting into business as well. And then just like a lot of people, it was just like, you know what, I'm not enjoying this anymore. I want a new challenge. I want to do something different. And just seeing that through. And now obviously you're at the Citadel. Can you just talk to us a little bit, Dan, about, you know, obviously CPR3 there. How did that come about, that discussion? And how did that program get stood up? I had this idea when I was when I was at the University of South Carolina finishing my PhD. Um, mm-hmm. So there'd been a lot of work done by the U.S. Army Public Health Center and great research scientists, uh, Dr. Bruce Jones and uh, some other folks who, who had really taken an epidemiological approach to investigating uh, injuries in the military. And what they saw, right, was that uh, among the strongest predictors of injury, at least in the Army, uh, gender was a very strong predictor of injury. Uh, but when you stratify by gender, when you separate males and females, fitness became the strongest predictor of injury, even ahead of body mass index or other factors. Fitness was the strongest predictor of injuries. Um, but I called Bruce uh, at the U.S. Army Public Health Center. I said, Bruce, has anybody ever looked at fit, physical fitness rates or, or levels uh, and injury rates based upon the state that a recruit was recruited from? Because as we were discussing off air, John, for those who are outside the U.S., you know, every state is, is different in the U.S. and has its own culture. And, and even regionally, we have differences. And in the southeastern region of the U.S., it's well documented that we have the worst public health outcomes. We have the highest rates of obesity. We have the highest rates of cancer, highest rates of diabetes, heart disease, stroke, you name it. And in fact, it's called the stroke belt. So the southeastern region of the U.S. is called the stroke belt. Uh-huh. And I had this hunch, right? I just had this hunch that recruits coming out of the South were going to be significantly less physically fit and more likely to become injured. So I said, Bruce, has anybody ever looked at that? And he said, no. And I said, well, uh, can I have your data? And, uh, you know, asking the DOD for data is, is a little bit challenging. So it took us a little while to get the data use agreement in place, but ultimately we did. And we, we did the evaluation. 
And in fact, it was very clear that recruits coming out of the Southeast were in fact significantly less fit and significantly more likely to uh, receive what, what we call a training related injury, right? A musculoskeletal injury uh, during basic training than recruits from anywhere else in the US. Um, and so that paper, when we published it, ended up getting a lot of media attention because um, it, was, it was really telling the story about how, again, the South is not only sort of disproportionately problematic for public health, but also disproportionately problematic for, for national security. And I came to the Citadel leadership and I said, okay, you know, we've identified a problem here, but we're, we're not a problem finding institution, we're a problem solving institution. So I, I said, uh, if you give me the chance, let's, let's establish a center that helps be the solution of the problem. Let's let the Citadel lead the way in designing academic programs, research programs, community engagement programs that are going to be the solution to the problem. And, and uh, I'll never forget the last slide in my slide deck as I was briefing our senior officials was, if not us, then who? And if not now, then when? Yeah. And kudos to the Citadel. They said it is going to be us and it's going to be now. And so they, they provided some seed funding. We've gotten it up and running. We're still in our infancy, but uh, that's the story behind the CPR3. And, and even in the midst of a global pandemic, we've been able to grow our programs. Uh, very fortunate to have just an incredible team of people at the Citadel at, at all different levels that are working together to try to make this happen. That's awesome. That's awesome to hear, Dan. And obviously you say there about the pandemic, I think there's no one on the planet who hasn't been touched, you know, and imp uh, impacted by it in some way. Um, I've seen some of the stuff you guys have been putting out to help support your cadets and stuff going through as well. Can you just talk to us a little bit about like what your action plan was around that and who you met with to help roll out. Sure. You know, the, the Citadel uh, is, is a military institution. For those who don't know, all of our undergraduate students, almost all, are cadets. So they're part of a military uh, experience. They live a military lifestyle. Although unlike the federal academies that we have in the U.S., like West Point and the United States Naval Academy and Air Force Academy and so on, not all of our cadets necessarily pursue a military contract. Uh, and we represent all different branches of the military. But we do have a very strong emphasis on fitness. And, um, and we have a commandant who's a, a retired Navy SEAL, and he obviously is pretty interested in fitness. Um, and, and he and I have worked together to try to just improve the delivery of our, what we call our regimental PT, our regimental you know, physical training program, which is, which is uh, you know, companies of cadets training together at the same time. And when you think about that from a strength and conditioning perspective, right, it, it's, a, it's, it's more of a military tradition than it is a scientific, you know, exercise science tradition. So to have an athlete to coach ratio of 100 to 1 okay. is not the best ratio. And, and when that coach has almost zero experience, you can't expect that you're going to deliver a very high quality experience uh, from a PT perspective. So we've been working to provide the officers who are in that position, we call them athletic officers, to give them a deeper skill set, uh, to at least provide them with some basic foundational knowledge about human movement and, and how to identify maybe dysfunctions in movement. I convinced uh, our, our, our commandant that he really needed to hire somebody who was a professional tactical strength and conditioning coach to oversee the program. I'd be lying to you. Uh, Absolutely. If I told you it was perfect, John, we're, we're, we're trying to figure it out still as we go and, and it's still in its infancy, but we're, we're working really hard to improve physical fitness. But beyond that, we've also expanded our definition of fitness to include mental and spiritual fitness, much like this is being seen across the military in the U.S. and, and abroad. Um, and I tell you, we've, we've had some real challenges this semester and this year, of course, with, 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 uh, COVID. Uh, so we, uh, in the Commandant's office, they also have regular leadership training programs that they go through. Uh, so we borrowed some people from the U.S. Army, some Army Master Resilience Trainers, to deliver some basic uh, skills in how to handle stress and anxiety and depression. Things that, you know, that, that these, a lot of these kids are dealing with on a daily basis that may not meet the bar for some clinical diagnosis, but is really adversely affecting their ability to function well as a cadet. Uh, 
-hmm. And we just provided them with some skills and knowledge and that ended up being exceedingly well received by the cadets. And we're gonna build on that program as we get going. Um, so those are just a, a couple of the small things that we've done just in-house with our cadet population. Uh, and then we're working to do some of those other things in the community. So we're, we're, we're starting to work with a local SWAT team. There is a, a military installation close by called Joint Base Charleston, and we're starting to do some work with them as well. And we'll continue to grow that network. Uh, and, and much like some other companies that are out there doing this and doing a really good job of it on the commercial side, you know, Exos and O2X and other, other industry leaders, um, they've got a great thing going. And I think, uh, you know, we're not trying to turf war anybody. Uh, we're yeah. just trying to learn from them take some of what they've done on this community engagement side, which is just bring the right subject matter experts to bear just to try to help wherever we can. That's awesome. That's awesome to hear, Dan. And like you say there, some people could take it as that sort of thing as a turf war, like, oh, well, you know, they're encroaching on our area. But it's just like, if the more of us are doing this sort of stuff and getting in there, it's better for those in tactical roles. You know, the more people helping out and doing this research is only a good thing for them. The, tur the turf is huge. Uh, the need is even bigger. So yeah, I mean, uh, even with respect to our academic programs, you know, we've, I, I guess you could say we've been the innovators in that space, but uh, gosh, I really hope and look forward, honestly, to some competition. Um, a, because we need it, it'll help us get better. And B, um, we just need more well-trained tactical strength conditioning coaches out there yeah. on the turf getting it done. Definitely, definitely, man. And I mean, you were saying before about obviously the big project for you guys is looking at, um, you know, overall health and impact of poor health in the Southeast on national security. What other research are you guys currently involved in? So we, uh, a, a lot of it, unfortunately, got sort of cut off at the knees uh, when, yeah. when COVID hit. But so we, we did do, we, we developed a, a survey instrument. So, you know, you hear lots of times, you know, you hear, oh, well, we just, you know, we sent out a survey to see what people think. And well, that's okay. Um, but, but anytime you're doing science, science, you want to make sure that the instruments that you're using are valid and reliable. Uh, in other words, that they're telling the truth. They're, they're giving you a good estimate of what's happening in the real world. And that's true of, of, of any kind of instrument. So, so just using a survey isn't really good enough in the scientific realm you've got to demonstrate first that, that that survey instrument is valid and reliable. So we developed a survey instrument to assess the value of a tactical strength and conditioning coach on a tactical unit. Uh, and we administered that survey three years in a row to our, our Corps of Cadets, mm -hmm. which was obviously a large enough sample, several thousand uh, cadets. It was a large enough sample for us to quote unquote, test the psychometric properties of that survey instrument. In other words, to demonstrate that in fact it is valid and reliable. So once we had done that, then we started using that survey uh, and we, we took, for example, our Army ROTC unit. And for those of you, obviously a lot of people know that the Army is, is in the midst of, of some big culture shifts with not only their holistic health and fitness program, but also with the Army combat fitness test. And there's a lot of concern over uh, failure rates of that Army combat fitness test. Yeah. So one of the studies we were doing, and that we'll pick up again once COVID uh, uh, releases us, its clutches from us, is we, we did uh, a study with our Army ROTC unit where we had a group that was doing just traditional Army PT, and we had a group that was receiving professional strength and conditioning coaching. Uh, and we looked at their, not only their Citadel physical fitness test scores, but also their scores on the Army combat fitness test before the intervention. And then after, uh, the intervention being the professional tactical strength and conditioning coaches. And we also administered this survey to see how much value they, they perceived they were getting out of this experience. So that was one research study that we did uh, where we don't have the post-test data, unfortunately. I can tell you anecdotally that things were definitely trending in the right direction. And had we actually not had to sh shut down because of COVID, I'm relatively certain we would have seen a statistically significant difference mm -hmm. in the intervention group as compared to the control group, both in terms of the hardcore metrics for their performance on the ACFT, but also how they perceive the value of the experience. And that's such an important piece because if you don't inherently value that what you're doing, or you don't understand the why behind the what, you're not going to be bought in. Mm 
And part of our jobs as tactical strength and conditioning coaches is to demonstrate value and above us and below us. And and so that was just one example um, of a study we were doing. We've done some other studies where we've looked at the impacts of yoga. We did this in our Naval ROTC unit. And, And perhaps what thrilled me the most about this was that I had a Marine contract cadet who was leading this study. Uh, And we just looked at the impact of yoga on their general physical fitness uh, and based upon their PT test scores and also on their uh, some elements of their mental health. So we use some validated measures for anxiety, depression, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. And unfortunately, we had a really small sample size. And so when you have a small sample size, sometimes it can be hard to detect change. So we, we didn't have enough statistical significance to show that uh, that there was a statistically significant difference in difference in those who received yoga as part of their PT compared to others who just received regular uh, Naval Marine ROTC PT. Uh, However, things were trending towards um, statistical significance, and we just needed to replicate that study in a larger sample of of cadets, which, again, we've not been able to do because of COVID. So those are just some small intervention trials. Again, it's like, so we understand the problem. Now let's try to find some solutions to the problem. Uh, but then on the large scale epidemiological side of things, we're continuing to do some studies with the U.S. Army Public Health Center looking at the economic impact of those training related injuries that are happening in Army basic combat training and looking to see if there are differences, again, by state or region in the United States. So, uh, you know, we're doing a little bit of everything in terms of small scale interventions and large scale epidemiological studies. But those are just a couple examples of some of the some of the things we're doing. They're, they're really, really cool, Dan, to hear. And I know from the yoga standpoint of things, more and more people I chat to, it's coming into a lot more programs, both from the tactical and the sporting side of things as well. Not only helping with guys to, you know, just relax and downregulate, but also that performance side of, like, especially for a lot of guys who come from the strength background, it's like, it's, you know, 45 minutes of dedicated stretching you would never normally do as well, which is great to see. And... I think that one you're saying there as well about tying things back into budgets is huge. It's coming from the, the, the coaching side of things, you know, it's very much one-to-one getting that relationship built and, you know, having that, uh, that buy-in from the athlete. But obviously, you know, most things with the military and stuff as well, it's still, there's a business element to it. So you've invested so much money in individuals to train them and suddenly that individual isn't deployable. So it's all about trying to make up that thing as well. Like, right, how can you minimize the chance of having that asset sitting out no yeah and and, and john i think perhaps the you're absolutely right and perhaps the greatest outcome of that yoga study was not you know whether it was statistically significant or not it was that we've now graduated a young lieutenant in the united states marine corps who's a believer yeah he's going to be leading his marines in yoga and what impact is that going to have on the marine corps uh I don't know, but I bet it's going to be positive from, again, from, from the down regulation perspective uh, to the just physical preparedness perspective, uh, flexibility and so on, and, and core stability, you name it, right? I mean, we all know what those benefits of yoga are. They've been established for hundreds of years, yeah. uh, but now implementing those into a hardcore military setting um, might be challenging, but, but he's, he's, a, he's a gr- going to be a great Marine officer. And he's going to be one of those change agents, I think, in the military coming out of this place. And just to have had the opportunity to, to do research with him over 12 weeks and to think that that's the ripple effect it's going to have, that's pretty rewarding. That's cool. That's really, really cool. And obviously, Dan, you said there with regards to COVID and everything, you've had your legs swiped out from underneath you a little bit this year with regards to research. But obviously, you got those two little bits of research you were talking about there. What's the future then for your research? What have you got planned next and what are you hoping to go to? You know, we have to continue to demonstrate value, yeah. just like you were saying, John. I, I think that uh, so, so sort of picking up right where we left off, which is continuing to demonstrate how having professional tactical strength and conditioning coaches or even sport coaches in a tactical setting actually making a difference, reducing injuries and improving PT test scores, whatever the PT test is, and, and, and that's a whole nother can of worms that we can, <laughs> we can certainly open up if you want to. So continuing to, to demonstrate the value proposition uh, is gonna be really important. So we'll continue to do that research. I think that another area that, that we're starting to dive into that others are as well 
is the whole aspect of, of evaluating the athlete, their readiness. So the tech, you know, where does technology fit in with all this? And obviously mm-hmm. in the sport world, this has been going on for quite a while. You look across the upper echelons of elite professional sport and you see that they can identify uh, to the nth degree how ready uh, that athlete is and, and what they need for that specific day. Um, and the industry, you know, that industry is booming and for, with good reason. But I also think we need to proceed with caution. Uh, we talked a little bit earlier about validity and reliability of instruments, and we have to ensure that the data that we're gathering are telling the truth. So partnerships between industry, uh, scientists who may or may not be within a college or university setting, but the nice thing about a college university setting is that it's kind of unbiased, right? We, we don't have a bias towards any particular product mm-hmm. uh, or, or, or service. Uh, but I think the, the, the use of, for example, it might be wearable technologies, but the, the, the next big piece is getting that dashboard, understanding where an individual is physically, mentally, spiritually on any given day with whatever measures are going to give us the greatest valve and reliable assessment of that, whether it's heart rate variability or something else. We have to have good standard measures that we can use to inform what we're going to do with that athlete on that day. And if I think back to what we were doing when I owned the Proactive Performance Institute, in a very crude way, we did this. Part of our, part of our culture was when that client walked in the door that day, we had a very real conversation about how they were doing. It wasn't just, hey, what's up, John? How are you? Mm-hmm. It was, John, really, how, how are you doing today? Are you fatigued? How's work been going? How's your sleep been? What was your last meal like? Um, because certainly we, you know, we had a periodized plan for that particular client, but based upon what they were coming in with on that day, we would augment almost, almost inevitably augment that plan in some way for that day. And then at the end of the session, every single time, and some of our clients got tired of hearing it, we would say, you know, John, what, what worked well for you today? What did we do well? What could we have done better? Did you get what you needed? And we would take those notes and we would use them to inform how we're going to work with that client the next day. And we even developed some very crude technology. We actually developed um, a a, a web-based system. This was in the late 90s and early 2000s where uh, our clients could report on, uh, we gave them their own dashboard uh, for how they were thinking and feeling uh, and, and the things they were supposed to do. And it would light up as green, yellow, and red. We could check in on them at any time and then intervene appropriately. So continuing to use technology to advise us on what we should be doing at the individual level and at the group level, it's gonna be really important, I think, for continuing to demonstrate the value for what we're doing. And so we'll, we'll look to continue to partner with industry and the military and other groups on developing, validating those technologies and hopefully deploying them in such a way that they're really useful. That's awesome, that's awesome to hear, Dan. And I mean, um... Yeah, it's it's one thing I know from my background within sport of just constantly, you know, that monitoring process. Uh, I think Josh Fletcher put brilliantly in our, our season one episode, he said, you know, make sure you write your, your programs in pencil. That's it, instead of pen, so you can always adapt and change those out. So it's like, right, yeah, perfect. 100% agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. It, it is, yeah, that, that, you know, and that's where the ability to think critically yeah. is so unbelievably valuable. And I, I tell all my students here, you know, that exercise science is simply the backdrop for what you're really developing and mm-hmm. honing, which are your abilities to think critically, to identify a solution to a problem, and to present your, your position on that solution concisely and persuasively. That's yeah. it. That's, that's our job, is, is to give them those skills. And, and, and again, exercise science just happens to be the backdrop, pretty fun backdrop, uh, that's a biased opinion. Uh, and that's what we need in, in our tactical community. We, yep. we, need, we need critical thinkers more so, I think, in many ways, almost more so than we need just doers. We need both, but we need people who can critically think through a problem yep. and know how to pivot and change and adapt on the fly and Definitely. why they're adapting on the fly. Definitely. I agree with you 100% on that, Dan. And I think that's quite a unique thing about the tactical realm as well compared to sport is you've got such a diverse range there. So 
typically in sport would see guys from say late teens to maybe early thirties, you know, when they're starting to retire, whereas tactical, you got guys from, you know, 20s all the way to the guys who've got a bit of mileage on them now at like late 40s, early 50s. And it's just like, how do you adapt that program to get the same outcomes, but very much to make it unique to that individual as well? Yeah, I, so I totally agree. And I would add to that, you know, when you take just two buckets, you take tactical athlete and sport athlete. Mm -hmm. um, we know that within each of those buckets, there are dozens of other buckets, right? Yeah. So if you just take the military bucket of tactical, then you've still got fire service, police service, EMS, and then you go inside that military bucket and you've got special operation forces and all these, you know, so understanding the unique physiological, psychological, behavioral, cognitive needs within each of those buckets. Yeah. And then within each individual within that bucket, that's when you know you've got a really deep set of skills and a, and a really big toolbox is when you can really parse out what is needed for that specific tactical athlete at that specific moment in time to help them perform optimally mm -hmm. on that day and then in the future. Now, I know, Dan, you're talking a little bit about your research and off air, we were saying like, obviously I came first aware of the Citadel when I started out in my strength conditioning career. And I saw what uh, Danelle Boucher was doing over there with regards to his program and how he's running things. And then obviously last year or so I've seen you guys have started to really stand up these educational programs as well with regards to, I think, the is attack of performance and resiliency postgraduate program. So can you just talk to us a little bit about, like, you know, why this program's created, where the idea came about, and, you know, how you've started to roll it out? Yeah. Uh, so we, again, you know, we're a problem-solving institution, and, and, and one of the problems that I saw, of course, in the fitness industry was that the bar was just oftentimes too low, right? I mean, anybody can hang the shingle outside their door that says fitness professional. And, uh, you know, you don't, you just don't know what you're going to get, right? Because we don't really have industry standards. I think, you know, organizations like the NSCA and the American College of Sports Medicine uh, have set bars and they've set really legit bars uh, and all, other organizations as well. Um, but there are others for whom the bar is really quite low. And, uh, and that's problematic because to the, to the individual uh, consumer, they, they, can't, they don't know the difference between a CSCS and a CPT from XYZ organization. Uh, so we at the Citadel, as, as an academic institution, uh, we decided we were going to set a pretty high bar. And so we, we created three programs. Uh, we created a, a residential master's of science degree program. Uh, so the degree is actually in health exercise and sports science with a concentration in tactical performance and resiliency. So you're getting all your base exercise physiology and biomechanics and research methods over here. But then on this other side, you're getting uh, how to apply it all to the tactical athlete. And from day one, you're applying it in the field. So you're actually working as a tactical strength and conditioning coach from the moment you set foot in a classroom. So in addition to your classroom experience, you are required to accumulate coaching hours and we have a, a progressed program and I owe it really to, uh, to the guy who's a director of my tactical academic programs and that's Dr. Chris Bellon. And he's the one who devised our, this whole model, but it's, it's observe, assist, and then lead. So in the first part of your coaching experience, you're observing what's happening. And then gradually you move into this assisting role where you're helping out to execute a, a particular program on a given day. And then you move into a leadership role where you're actually designing the program and you've got people underneath you. Mm -hmm. So between uh, Chris Bellon and, and Donnell Boucher, uh, we've been able to sort of marry the sport world and the tactical world together so that our students who are living here residentially and going through our master's program are not only getting exposure to the science of how we do this, but they're, they're getting exposed to the art of how you actually lead and coach on the floor. Um, we recognize though, not everybody can pick up and move to Charleston, South Carolina. So we also developed a, an online graduate certificate program in tactical performance and resiliency. This is for the individual who probably has, a, certainly has a bachelor's degree already, ideally maybe in an exercise science related field. Maybe they even have a master's degree in strength and conditioning or a lot of experience as a strength and conditioning coach, but they're wanting to now pivot into that tactical space. We've created this uh, curriculum, online curriculum for them uh, that gives them, again, a lot of application to the tactical space and also brings in 
uh, as we do on the residential side, the mental health piece. So we have a course called Psychological Resiliency, uh, and that's a required course, and that's where we, that's taught by folks in our psychology department who have experience working with the military and things like PTSD. Um, so that online graduate certificate program also has uh, a requirement. Your final course is an actual uh, internship. So you have to accumulate X number of hours in an internship under a CSCS in a tactical setting in order to complete the program. And then finally, we, we have an online, fully online Bachelor of Science degree program as well. Um, and, and that's for somebody who maybe doesn't have their bachelor's degree, uh, but wants to be able to get it. And maybe they work within the military uh, and, and, and wants to get that bachelor's degree. So again, same, but that's obviously spread out over a pretty long period of time. It's a long, longer program, but for somebody who wants their bachelor's degree. Uh, so we created those programs again because we wanted to set a high bar. We really wanted to ensure that the individuals who were graduating from these programs were going to be able to ultimately move into leadership positions and, and be the ones maybe writing or helping to write military doctrine on, mm -hmm. on some of these things. But be critical thinkers. You know, again, as we look at the ACFT and holistic health and fitness and other efforts, you know, what should a PT test look like? Well, that's a question that I'm going to expect a graduate of our program to answer. Um, and there should be able to design it, the PT test, explain why it is what it is, be able to research, you know, when it's working and why it's working and design programs to help individuals not only pass that PT test, but just be better performers at life. And I think that's, you know, we talked about maybe some themes earlier and, and some mm -hmm. areas of research. John, and, and if I could just circle back to this, I think we have a tendency to get pretty squarely focused on the test. Yeah. And I think from a cultural perspective, uh, we need to shift away from that. Uh, I think we need standards. Uh, I just wonder if the standards should be more uh, assessed more regularly. And that's where, again, technology can come in. And uh, I, don't think you're, I don't think you're training for a test. You're training for a job. And then the test is going, or the tests, are going to assess various aspects of your ability to do well in that job. And they need to move beyond, I would say, even the physiological. So we do have a long way to go. But again, our, our programs are designed to help individuals become leaders in this tactical strength and conditioning space by understanding that it's more than just tactical strength and conditioning. It's more than just taking somebody from, you know, to, to making them bigger, stronger, and faster. Yeah. It's understanding the injury prevention side. It's understanding how they are supposed to interact with a collaborative team of individuals. So it's like, hey, know your lane, bro. You know, your lane is in tactical strength and conditioning, but you need to be able to recognize signs and symptoms of stress, anxiety, and depression in your, in your athlete, in your tactical athlete. Yeah. It's not necessarily your job to intervene, just like it wouldn't be your job to intervene if you identified signs and symptoms of a stress fracture, or you wouldn't, it's not your job to diagnose those things. But it is your job to recognize those things and know how to refer that athlete out to the proper professional to help intervene. And so scope of practice is a big part of what we do. Uh, so they need to know their lane, but they also need to know uh, how and when to refer that athlete out to the other individuals who are going to help that athlete perform holistically. Absolutely. I agree with that, Dan. And I was chatting to uh, Dr. Rob Orr over at uh, Bond University about this and saying, like, obviously, with tests and people do get stuck down that rabbit hole, and it's just a snapshot rather than looking at the bigger picture stuff. So, like, with regards to recruits, you know, going into any military thing, we'll always test them to see that make, you know, minimum standards so they should hold up during training. But for most of them, it's a case of, you know, they're fit enough to be there, but it's the, the total volume of training they're not used to of training multiple times per day day after day after day and that's what breaks them down so it's like right how are you actually preparing for that side of things as well and then like you say as well just understand the bigger picture with them and how that looks for their job so it's one thing for you know a sports team to go in and do like a very heavy session if you know you're playing in like a week's time or like 10 days time but if you've got someone who's on like a rapid response team like in the SWAT personnel or the, you know the fire service like do you want that person going out of, you know, incredible muscle soreness onto his shift? You know, what's the impact going to be for that guy as well? So just having that bigger view of everything that's going on and how everything fits in with each other, I'd say. Yeah, they're, they're important pieces, you know, and, and um, we, we've got, right, we've got, again, we've got to be able to create critical thinkers who can think through some of these problems and identify solutions 
and present those concisely and persuasively. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I just wanted to uh, pull it back around there, Dan, just regarding the, uh, the graduate program you've got there at Citadel. Like obviously you said about the, the certificate and the, the actual full-blown graduate on-site program. I, I love the fact you've got a, a work component there so people are gaining physical experience, you know, so they can actually apply everything they learn in the classroom as well. Whatever things like, so how long does the, um, the graduate program take? Is it, is it a one-year on-site thing? And what, what are the yeah. key modules for it as well? So uh, good, good questions. Uh, so the, the, the graduate degree program, if you were to come here and do it residentially and you were to do it full-time, which is taking uh, three courses you know, per semester, uh, it takes just shy of two years to complete. So okay. it's about a two-year obligation. Uh, and, and the modules are... As I was saying, you know, everything from, you know, exercise physiology, biomechanics, functional anatomy, some kinesiology, coaching, uh, nutrition, psychological resiliency, uh, uh, research methods. So you understand the scientific process and, and how we how we can uh, uh, measure things validly and reliably. And then obviously tactical strength and conditioning, uh, movement analysis, all, all those different pieces are there. It's almost like if you take if you were to take the NSCA's TSACF book, mm -hmm. um, it's almost, and, and we've worked really closely with the NSCA to try to help align our work with, with, uh, with what they're doing. You know, each, it's almost like each chapter is a course. Um, and, and that's the way you write textbooks oftentimes, right? You get the subject matter expert and they teach this course over, the, over an entire semester, but they're gonna boil it down into a single chapter in a book, right? Uh, so what we've really tried to do is, is is in our graduate programs <clears throat> in, is to have all those different elements. In the graduate certificate program, we're a little bit more narrowly focused on the application to the tactical athlete. Uh, so we don't have as much time to get into research methods and, and some other more in-depth things, uh, but it's really designed to help create a good, uh, effective baseline professional tactical strength and conditioning coach. And of course, it depends on what you come into that program with, right? If you're coming in with an MS in strength and conditioning, you're a CSCS with five years of professional coaching experience, that's going to get you to a level that's much higher than somebody who comes in with a bachelor's degree in exercise science with zero coaching experience. Yeah. Um, so they're going to they're come in at different levels and they're going to graduate at different levels. And that graduate certificate program can be completed within a calendar year, basically a fall, a spring, and a summer, and then you're done. And that summer is really ideally spent doing your internship. So that can be turned around pretty quickly. And that's two courses uh, in the fall, two in the spring, and then one in the summer. Uh, and then the, the online undergraduate program, uh, that can take several years. And it's really just a function of how many college credits somebody's coming in with. Uh, it could be completed in as little as two years, and it could take up to three and a half or four and again, it just depends upon, uh, you know, how much time that person can commit. So a, lo a lot of the people in that program are active duty service members. They can't take on a full academic course load. Uh, so it might take them four or five years to complete it. Uh, but others, they can move through it in two if they wow. can do it full time okay. and they're coming in with, with two years of academic experience. So, but again, the modules are, are, are everything that you would see in a CSCS TSAC F book. Some of the things you would see, for example, in maybe National Academy of Sports Medicine's Corrective Exercise Specialist, things you would see in the American College of Sports Medicine uh, textbooks for exercise testing and prescription. So while we are, I think, uh, probably most heavily aligned with the NSCA, uh, we're also aligned with standards from other elite organizations like ACSM and ASM and others, because again, we want a really deep skill set. Um, and for all our programs, uh, it's a requirement for graduation that you have a certificate in mental health first aid. Okay. So a lot of these jobs, you know, you're, you're required to have your first aid and CPR certification, which obviously you need. We felt it was critically important uh, that people also understand the mental, again, the mental health red flags that may come up. So as part of our psychological resiliency class, which is a part of all three programs, uh, one of the requirements is that you pass and get certified as a mental health first aid expert. Well, that's incredible. That sounds awesome, Dan. I'm sure anyone listening will definitely want to check it out and see, you know, which option is the best fit for them. Now, obviously, Dan, we were chatting a little bit off air before and, you know, our own backgrounds and how we've gone to these points as well. 
it's it's come quite a hot topic now, like tactical research as well, and like tactical coaching. And as I said to you, I feel like you guys in the US and over in Australia are very much leading the way, and we're very much playing catch up here in the UK. What do you what do you feel like from your own experience in that? What do you feel is the the growth over the next few years, and where do you see it going with regards to the tactical strength addition? The growth is going to be in how many experts we have in the field, and and I think the big question we need to be asking is what are the key, as we would call KSAs, what, what are the key knowledge, skills, and abilities that a tactical strength and conditioning coach needs to have operating on uh, a, a coaching floor? Um, so, you know, the ability to just prepare professionals for this career is, I think, a tremendous growth opportunity. And that's where I said earlier, um, we look forward to being a part of that solution, and I, and I hope that others will come on board. Uh, and, be, and, and provide solutions as well. Um, and I think we can have different levels, obviously, of that perfect, just, like, just like we do in the sport world, right? You're gonna graduate and get a job as an entry level. You know, first, maybe you're an intern and then you're a, you're a graduate assistant or what have you, and you sort of work your way up, up the ladder. And I think the same thing, that same model needs to be replicated on the tactical side. So you, you have some, some key knowledge, skills, and abilities, depending upon what you're coming up, you know, coming in with, you may be able to graduate into a mid or high level position. If you're not coming in with much, then maybe you graduate and move into an entry level position. But again, just developing the profession is, is a big part of what, what has to happen. Um, this shift in culture from just, you know, this is, we do it because this is how we've always done it in the military, that's starting to shift and that needs to continue to really change. And we need to be able to, again, demonstrate the value, reduce the injuries, show the return on investment, even on the softer side, show that people actually, soldiers or, or police officers or firefighters actually value their PT session and don't consider it a total waste of their time. Mm -hmm. I think demonstrating that value is going to be really important. And then the last piece, too, is, is, is that, that, uh, that dashboard of human performance. What does that look like? What are the key indicators? And how are we assessing them validly and reliably? Those are important elements as well. So I think all those are, are huge growth areas. It's an unbelievably exciting time in this field. I mean, it's just, it's just you can feel it, right? right? We're on, on the verge of exploding. Um, but we need to make sure we don't rush to failure. Yeah. We need to make sure that we're very careful in thinking about who are the professionals that we're going to have serving in these different roles? And if they're not good enough, we should know that. We should know that by doing the evaluation of them and saying, okay, back to the drawing board. We tried it this way. It didn't work so well. We know we need a little bit more knowledge, skills, and abilities at the base level. Um, so I think continue to evaluate the value proposition that the tactical strength and conditioning coach brings to the table is, is a really big part of where we have to go. That's awesome. That's great to hear, Dan. Uh, now, Dan, like everyone I have on the show, I'm always interested to know what they're involved in for their own development. So on that, could you just give us a, a book, an app, or a website that you found personally useful for your own education or your own development? I knew this question was coming because uh, I listened to the <laughs> podcast. Um, so, you know, it's funny. I, um, there, there, there is an app out there uh, that, that, that I've used not necessarily for my own development, for, but for the development of students. Uh, so Muscle in Motion uh, is an app that I think some people may be familiar with, but it's basically a functional anatomy app. Um, and what it does, and I think what's really important for people to understand, you know, everybody knows where your pecs are, right? Everybody knows that Monday is International Chest, Shoulders, and Triceps Day, right? So everybody knows, right, we got to get away from that, by the way. Um, but everybody, everybody knows where your pecs are, but what do they do? Mm -hmm. And perhaps more importantly, what's happening when they're not doing what they're supposed to do properly? So understanding not only where a muscle is, but what its function is and what happens to human movement when, when there's dysfunction, which is so common, right? And it's really the root of injury and it's the root of poor performance. Uh, so I think the Muscle in Motion app is one that I use a lot in my teaching. I'll, I'll use it a lot in my lectures and models for people to just understand where muscles are and what they do. So that, that's one I, I would highly recommend for somebody who's just wanting to get a little bit more understanding of the human musculoskeletal system. Um, 
And then in terms of just my own personal development, I, I mentioned earlier that I broke my back basically when I was 11 years old. And I've spent my entire life building um, the strength around that adversely affected structure in order to decrease pain. And over the course of my life, I've had episodes that have hospitalized me because I've been in so much pain. Um, but those were episodic, right? And they were basically muscle spasms. So I had muscle spasms that left me completely incapacitated. Um, and then about four years ago, I started to develop for the first time chronic progressive neurological discomfort. So mm -hmm. sciatic nerve, basically. So uh, for those hardcore physiologists and PTs who might be listening, I, I was diagnosed with something called foraminal stenosis, right? So the foramen is that area of the vertebrae where the nerve sort of pokes through, it's that hole. And because I've had uh, my back problems for 30 plus years, I started developing some arthritis. And so that hole started to close and it started impinging on the sciatic nerve. So that sciatic nerve was getting activated repeatedly uh, throughout the day and sending signals right down through my hamstring and into my calf and into my foot. And I tried. I tried exercise, right? I tried to exercise my way out of it. That didn't work. I tried physiotherapy. That didn't work. I tried massage therapy. That didn't work. I tried acupuncture. That didn't work. I tried Reiki, which some of you may or may not be familiar with, R-E-I-K-I. -I. That didn't work. I tried yoga. I tried everything. And I finally consulted three different neurosurgeons. And they all said the same thing. They said, we can do the surgery. And there's about a 70% chance it's gonna work and about a 30% chance it's not and that it might make things worse. So if you can live with the pain, live with the pain. And I was like, man, like, that's not the answer I wanted. I wanted you to tell me you were gonna fix me. Yeah. Um, so I have a brother who's a meditation teacher and he said, have you just tried meditating? And I was like, well, I do yoga. And he said, no, that, that's not it. Have you just tried meditating? And I said, no. And he said, well, just find an app, find, find something. And so I started looking at different ways to meditate. And John, it solved the problem. Really? So what I, what I realized, yes, what I realized through meditation was that, right, I spend, we spend so much time in our head just thinking about the past, thinking about the future, that we're not present. We're not thinking about what's going on in our bodies. Right now, as, as I stand, literally stand, right? I have a standing workstation. That's part of how I treat my back. But it's, so as I stand here talking to you, I know that my sciatic nerve, if I actually think about it, it's sending signals down my hamstring and into my foot right now. But if I stop and I take a couple of deep breaths and I tell those muscles to relax, they start to relax. So what started as about a 20 or 30 minute routine every night of consciously just being aware of my body and telling those muscles to relax, that pain started to dissipate, started to dissipate. And now I just do it, instead of 30 minutes at a whack, I'll do maybe two minutes here and there of some breathing exercises and just getting out of my head and into my body. So I would just say, you know, any kind of app or book or whatever that helps you find a way to meditate, I would strongly encourage people to do that. It's been, it, frankly, life-saving for me. I mean, I reached a point where I couldn't walk across campus without having a significant foot drop. Wow. That's, how, that's how bad it got. And it scared the bejesus out of me, right? I, my kids were eight and nine years old, and I thought, how, like, I'm not going to be able to play with my kids. And obviously, I've had to adjust my exercise, right? I don't, I don't, I don't deadlift huge amounts of weight or squat huge amounts of weight anymore because it's not good to compress my spine with heavy load that way. But um, but it really, it was, it, was, it was that sort of meditative process that frankly saved me. So, so the two things I use, uh, again, just for my own personal development, uh, meditation's been key for me. Uh, obviously, I continue to look at the science on, on how, we, how we train and how we can improve. Uh, but there's not one source that I use for that. It's just diving into the literature. Uh, but the, again, I, I think for the sort of the novice person, that muscle and motion app can be, can be really quite helpful. Uh, and I would encourage anybody and everybody who doesn't have a meditation practice of some kind or another to begin one and just find the right, uh, the right tool out there for them. Perfect. That's awesome, Dan. I'll make sure I pop those into our show notes for everyone listening. Now, Dan, obviously it's been great chatting to you, man. I think we could go on for hours and hours, but I'm very conscious of your time. I don't want to take up too much of it. 
For anyone who's listening to this show, though, you know, who wants to find a bit more, wants to get in touch and reach out to you, how could they do that? So they can find me on LinkedIn. So, uh, you know, I can, and, and, and John, I can send you the information or the links. I'm not sure if they can be embedded. Yep. Uh, of course, you could, you could uh, find me at the, at the Citadel. Um, my, my email is dbornste at citadel.edu. Uh, so find me on LinkedIn, send me an email. Uh, you can look up the CPR3 at the Citadel. You can find me through there. Uh, you could probably Google me. I don't know how many Daniel Bornsteins there are, but there's, there's probably a few of us. Um, but just look for the ugliest one, and uh, that's me. <clears throat> yeah, the one with the biggest nose. That's me. Hey, mate, you're preaching to the choir over here, dude. I've got the, the big <laughs> nose, so I, I'm with you, bud. I'm with you. Yeah, my nickname in college was Schnoz, and, and, and it sort of stuck with me. <laughs> um, I've had Gonzo a few times myself, so yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. with you, yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. No, Dan, honestly, mate, thank you so much, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure to sit down and finally chat with you, mate. We've got a lot of this, and I think anyone listening will say it's been an invaluable uh, episode as well. Well, John, again, th thanks so much for the work that you're doing. Uh, you know, if somebody got a nugget of information from this, you know, I, I, that would be great. And I, I've certainly got plenty from your podcast as well. Uh, so I never try to stop the willing process and, and uh, hope others continue to quench their thirst for knowledge. And I think your podcast does, does such a good job of providing that. So thanks to you. Thank you very much, Dan. Appreciate it, mate. Anyway, take care, buddy. And we'll speak to you later, okay? Yeah, take care, John. Hi guys, really hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Monarch Human Performance Podcast. I just wanted to say thank you for your continued support to the show. We're slowly growing each week and getting more and more downloads, which is truly incredible for such a niche-specific podcast. The continued support us can ask you to do me a simple favor. First of all, subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're using so you can receive each new episode as soon as it's released. Secondly, if you found something educational, if it made you see a different perspective, or if you took something away from this podcast that made you better, please leave us a review as it means a lot to me and please share the show. This will help us to grow the show and really get this information out to a lot more people.